Connected Singer. What better way to start this series of The Connected Singer than by chatting to one of the music industry's most connected artists, Raz Kennedy. Yes, a singer with Bobby McFerrin's voice extra, backing vocalist extraordinaire and vocal coach to the stars. Raz has masses of musical talent, a ton of industry tales, and a plethora of practical advice to share with you our wonderful listeners. Covering everything from overcoming stage fright, singing authentically, to making it in the music business, we leave no stone unturned on our journey with this truly inspiring artist. The Connected Singer. And he was really inspiring, actually, wasn't he, Michael? Yeah. The wealth of experience that he's had, it just has definitely shaped him into such a wonderful, authentic human being. I mean, he, he is Mr. Connected, I think. <laughs> yeah. In, in so many ways and in such a, a a lovely way as well. You know, all that experience and yet just being such a, a kind, uh, empathic person who's, uh, who has, you know, in his native West Coast and beyond has just reached out to so many people. And, you know, there's even a, a, a day named after him in the city of Berkeley and near San Francisco. It's incredible. And just the people he's worked with, People he's sung with, uh, the stories he's he tell me. Well, the stories he told us uh, are only scratching the surface, but it was pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, where he's been. I mean, he's travelled all over the world in search of inspiration, gaining experience. He's really one of these curious, inquisitive human beings, and I think that's what makes him such a joy to speak to and uh, to learn from, I think. I mean, I'd love to have a vocal coaching session with him, actually. Maybe I should book that in. <laughs> That'd be pretty cool. I mean, you know, just the interesting thing for me is that he also did so much experiential learning. Yeah. You know, yeah. traveling through Latin America to learn about rhythms. He, he, he Just learning from some of the greatest voice pedagogues and history. And also how he's connected that up with some of his academic learning, you know, so he's, he's done, he's done pretty much everything. He's got such a rounded sort of career, but it's not just a career, is it? It's a life. Yeah, exactly. And, and also a reminder why singing matters, really. Yeah. The, the honour he received from the city of Berkeley, you know, he's been involved in so many social justice causes and his, his mission is to uh, advocate for and assist anyone, it says, uh, who desires to experience the liberating power that can be attained through singing as artistic expression. For all of us, it's, it's important to think about why we, why we do this. You know, why do we sing? What's it all about? And it's really connecting with people, sharing something and, and, uh, lifting other people up, which he spent his whole career doing. Absolutely. And I think it's it's the best start to our podcast that we could have ever asked for. Definitely. I think <laughs> totally, totally grateful for having the opportunity to chat to this artist, coach, this amazing, wonderful, kind, natured and passionate person. So I'd say stick the kettle on, put your feet up and come and connect with Michael and I on this wonderful journey with Raz Kennedy. Connected Today we are very excited to have a guest with us who has dedicated his life to music for over 40 years, regarded as a veteran music educator, producer, 
and vocalist devoted to the pursuit of excellence. Wow. His fruitful music career and ever-evolving life journey has seen him serve as one of the founding members of the internationally acclaimed Bobby McFerrin's Oysistra. It's led him to perform as a background vocalist on recordings for artists such as Whitney Houston, Al Jarreau and Kenny Loggins, as well as on stage for Sting, Ricky Hart and Rebecca Moulion. Beautiful artist, yes. He has gold and platinum records to his credit as a vocal coach and producer, having worked with thousands of singers and musicians, including members of Metallica, to Adam Duritz of Counting Crows, Stefan Jenkins of Third Eye Blind, Hilary Duff, members of the Los Tigre del Norte, the late Clarence Clemens from Bruce Springsteen's E Street Band, and many more. In his capacity as vocal coach, his work stretches from voice rehabilitation to the pursuit of artistic expression, something that I'm really looking forward to, to hearing about. Therefore, with such a wealth of knowledge to delve into and share today, it is with our greatest pleasure to welcome all the way from sunny California, the warm, generous and talented Raz Kennedy. The Connected Singer. Wow. I've never had an introduction like that, ever. Man, I'm going to, can I hire you? <laughs> A spokesperson. <laughs> Man. So thank you for having me. Yeah. Well, thank you for having We're me. We're really excited to have you here. So um, perhaps we should uh, begin by chatting about how and why you took your first steps towards becoming a vocalist and what and who your inspirations were. Wow. Okay. This is real easy to explain. Uh, you know, I was born in L.A. Mm-hmm. And that was back in 53. So this was 1953, born in, right in L.A. And uh, my parents were quite young. They had me when they were only 20. Um, what happened was that um, my mother had me and she had my sister. We were born in the same year. We're called Irish twins. Ah. I was born in February of 53. And she was at the end of the year in December wow. of the same year. So anyway, my mom had us like bum, bum, bum. And I guess she got overwhelmed by the fact that she had all of these kids so, so quickly, two kids. And so she was going a little bit bonkers. So what she did was uh, she and my father at the time decided that maybe she could take a little bit of a hiatus. So she got a little job just to kind of break the monotony. And uh, she was hired as a secretary. And it just so happened that it was in a, uh, at, a, at a talent management agency. And uh, so she was a secretary there. And then it wasn't long before the, the people there saw that she had writing skills. She did study journalism in college and writing. Uh, so they put her in publicity and promotion. And it just so happened that this management agency managed some of the top doo-wop groups of the day. You know, the Platters was one of their big groups. I am the great pretender and uh, only you. And so my mom all of a sudden found herself in the music business. Not, it wasn't like something she was uh, aspiring to do. She just wanted a little job to kind of break the monotony. But then before long, she realized, wow. I really like this. This is like something I would love to do as a career. And being a woman of color, uh, that was quite a monumental thing at that time. This is in the early 50s, if you want to. You know, so. And so um, that was what caused she and my father to separate because my, my father really wanted a home with a wife. My mother was not that woman. She ended up being a career woman and then 
Uh, she started working for major um, distributors at the time and moved up the ladder. And I mean, before long, she was representing people like Ike and Tina Turner. She was representing Little Richard, Major Lance, uh, Sonny and Cher would show up at her home. You know, so, um, <clears throat> so as a kid growing up, this was my world, you know, uh, because my mom started this career thing when I was only four, five years old. So from the time I was four or five, I was around musicians and the industry, going to, you know, recording sessions, uh, uh, going to TV shows and seeing bands like the Stones live on TV and R&B groups. So, you know, this was kind of like my world. And then my mother ended up moving up the ladder, finally ended up uh, being employed by Epic and Columbia Records. She was the first woman and the first person of color to have in an executive position with a major record corporation that was pretty much white male ran. Wow. And she worked under Clive Davis back at the time when he was at Columbia. So she actually managed the whole West Coast region in publicity and promotion and marketing for uh, Epic Columbia. So, I mean, as a kid growing up, we were the first to get the records. We were the first to hear the stuff. We got the demos. And so uh, what happened, though, was that my mother was always away. She was always working. My grandmother basically raised me by the fact that my mother had this career. And, uh, and I think I got into singing. I, well, I didn't start by singing. I started by playing the cello. That was my first instrument. So I wasn't interested in singing. Wow. I was, a, I was about maybe 12, and that's when I started the cello. And then I ended up moving on to the guitar. No, not, no, no. I was eight. I was eight when I started on the cello, eight and nine. Then I went to guitar at 12. And so I got into music. The thing that inspired me to pick up the cello and to play the guitar was that I, as a little child, was really looking for my mother's attention. Okay. I had no mother in my life. My grandmother was raising me. But I thought that if I became a musician, maybe my mother might pay attention to me. Maybe she might see me because she was always away and so busy. So I, I, I guess what I I, I realized that I got into music as a way to attract my mother's affection and love. That's what brought me into music. Oh. And so I worked really hard at it because I wanted to be good enough to make an impression. Awesome. And so I started playing in bands and uh, I started singing, not because I wanted to, in these bands that I started playing. And L.A. was a great place to grow up, especially in the 60s. Yeah. Because there was so much going on at that time. Man, it was a great city then. I don't know about now, but it was a great city <laughs> then. And uh, so there was a lot of music going on. You could, there were contact centers where young people could play, jam. The schools at that time had music departments and we could jam during lunch. So I did a lot of that as a kid growing up. And I started singing because nobody else in the band wanted to. Ah, okay. So we started. We started. We started doing R and B because I was very influenced by R and B and rock. Yeah. My mother, you know, because she was there, exposing me to so much in popular culture around music. That was the kind of stuff I did. So I decided that we'd be doing Rolling Stones and Marvin Gaye. We'd be doing the Yardbirds and uh, and uh, and uh, Bobby Womack. You know, so we were doing this kind of music, a mix of British rock, really. And uh, American R and B. Oh, amazing! So, uh, so we, I really liked the British rock stuff that was coming out during that time. 
I, I saw Led Zeppelin, you know, I saw the Yardbirds with Jeff Beck, you know, I saw the Jeff Beck band when Rod Stewart was just getting started as his lead singer. I saw these bands. I saw Hendrix six times, wow. you know, so <laughs> my first rock show was a Jimi Hendrix concert. My mother took me. Uh, I saw Ray Charles when I was only seven years old, you know, with the, with the, with the Raylettes, you know, so, so when I was a kid growing up, this was, this was the music we were playing, you know, rock, British rock and American R&B. Yeah. So I started singing because nobody in the band wanted to sing. I didn't really think of myself as a singer, but I said, okay, I'll do the singing, whatever. And it wasn't until I got to college when I decided to take singing more seriously. Right. So then I became a, a, a vocal major in college and I studied the clarinet as, a, as my second instrument. Ah. So that's when I got into singing and it was jazz singing that really got me going. Right. Because I discovered jazz when I went to, went by that. well, I knew, I heard jazz, it was around the house, but I didn't really find myself being compelled to do it until I was more like a, a high school age, 12, uh, like around 18, 19. I heard Eric Dolphy and John Coltrane and then I started getting into jazz. So, uh, so I studied jazz vocals and classical in college because that was really the only thing you could do, classical singing and jazz. Not, there was no rock or pop or anything like that. But I already done that because I was doing that as a kid growing up. So I learned how to do all of that stuff just by learning. From example, watching how people do things and you kind of just learn by osmosis. Uh, but that's how I got into singing, if you want to know. That was what compelled me to get into music was my mother's absence, my need to seek her love. And in so doing, I started discovering more and more things about music. If I think about it now, if I was left up to my own devices, I probably would have ended up being a doctor. Oh, wow. And I think that's what, I think that's why I got into teaching. Yeah. Because teaching is a way to help people. It's a healing thing when you can bring somebody into an experience of being expressive and and they can speak their minds and speak their business and speak their hearts. Yeah. Uh, people feel uh, alive and capable to connect when they can sing. Singing is a communicative device that we use as a way to connect. So I think that's how I got into teaching voice because that was my way of servicing people, to help people, to empower them, to heal them. Yeah. So Why did you then decide that you wanted to study music? Was it because you had the chance to learn more about the voice in a different genre and you wanted to educate yourself yep. that or was it because of the newfound love perhaps for vocals yes. um, or yeah, what was your incentive to, to, yeah, to study rather than just carry on being in a band? Mm -hmm. Well, now when I was growing up as a kid, I did study music because I did study formerly classical cello and I studied guitar. I took guitar lessons. But a lot of the stylings and the ways I sung was self-taught, you know, like imitating uh, distortion. You, you listen to a Bobby Womack record, you think, how is he doing that? And so as a kid, or like you listen to the Four Seasons, how is Frankie Valley hitting that high? <laughs> you know, but you're, you're copying this stuff as a kid. So you're learning it just, and you learn it. And, yeah. But the reason why I wanted to study music was because I had gotten into jazz, like I said, I, I learned, I, I, all of a sudden, jazz became this incredible expression that I wanted to know more about. And so I went to college to learn theory, to learn how to read, to learn how to, um, you know, take a jazz chart and, and read it down or, you know, interesting chords where they're voicing, you know, flat nines and, you know, 11 chords and 13. You know, I wanted to learn all of that. 
I mean, I was doing things from just, uh, so that's why I went. I thought to really be a musician, you would have to know how to read. You would have to learn your training. You would have to. So I thought, well, if I'm going to really be a musician, then I got to do that. So that's why I went to college. But then I certainly found out, having done a couple of years, after a couple of years of that, I realized, oh, theory is not music. The tool, but that's not music. Because I started getting into my head about stuff, losing this part. So at the end of the day, I mean, it comes from the soul and it's the main point and it's communication. Yeah, I had to actually have a friend remind me of that because I, I got so into theory that I was just walking around with harmonic progressions thinking that that was it, right? <laughs> and then I remember I was doing stuff, I was singing on something and somebody says, look, man, you got to get back into the gut. You got to get out of your head and get back into underneath the belly button. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you got to get down, brother. <laughs> so that really is a reminder. Oh, yeah, I'm in my head. I about this, you know. So it's just another way to communicate to know how to write music. Yeah. yeah. But I mean, Raz, you've also, I mean, we'll get to all the incredible things you've done in your career. But one of the things that people know you for is how, you know, how well you talked about the theory and all that stuff. But you really understand rhythm and you've traveled the world. I mean, you've worked with amazing Latin American musicians. You've been over our side of the, the world, you know, working with Danish musicians. And I mean, what have you learned from these really diverse musical backgrounds and, and like, how does it shape you as an artist? Yes. What, what you, it's, it, music is language and music when you look at a melody, a melody has two components. It's got the note choices that you're deciding, like the different ways in which you can raise your voice or bring it down. You know, you're working with different note choices. Then the other element to a melody is the rhythm of it. So, you know, the way you're phrasing it, the way it rolls out, the, the dance, it's like the dance in the, in the melody. So when you're doing music, those two components are very, well, that's what we use as, as tools to speak. Hmm? Yeah. So you want to learn as much as you can about how those tools are are used in different ways. It's kind of like I know people that study languages. They they can speak twenty, and that's their passion. I, I traveled to Cuba twice wow. to study the rhythms because Afro-Cuban rhythms are such an integral part of what defines American music. American music, the rhythm in it, is really um, a rhythm that has its 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 roots in Africa. Now, I couldn't go to Africa, but Cuba is the most closest thing to Africa if you want to study rhythms from Africa, West Africa. So when you're talking about American music, and if you really want to understand uh, what makes it tick, African polyrhythms is how we get funk, how we get swing, how we get a shuffle. And then, when, and then if you want to study American music and understand the melodic and harmonic component, you got to go to Europe and Africa, because the harmonic idea of tertial harmony is a European concept. That's not African. American music is, a, is an amalgam of, Euro, it's an Euro-Afro music, uh, essentially. It's a music that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a the two ideas conflate, they overlap. They, they, so we're, in order to know your music, you want to go to the roots of where the source is so tertial harmony from Europe, a one, six, four, five progression in, in jazz or pop music is not an African concept, but we hear it all over black music. 
that's a European concept that's been adapted by Africans that then bring their rhythms into it along with their pentatonic scales. Now, we use the diatonics from Europe, but we use the pentatonics from Africa. And that's another component that defines American music. So when I want to study, well, what makes my music tick? You want to go and research the sources. And then when you sing, you're really coming from an intelligence as to what makes the music tick. You're singing it from an idea of understanding its, its, its genesis. So yeah, I went to Cuba. I've been to Brazil twice, Cuba twice, um, Japan a couple of times, the Kabuki thing, and, uh, and, you know, over in Europe and all over this country, you know, New Orleans, you know, New York, Detroit, Chicago, studying in Cleveland, working with uh, improvisational singers in New York. I spent three months there doing that. So I'm just curious about all of the things that make music what it is. I got that inspiration from George Duke, if you know him. He, a uh, great pianist, he worked with Frank Zappa, had his own records, great producer. He actually produced Anita Baker, incredible uh, uh, keyboardist. And uh, back when I was doing concert promotions, I used to do concert promotions. I used to, for Cal, we brought Betty Carter, Ella Fitzgerald, Weatherly Port, Johnny Mitchell with Herbie Hancock. But at that time, George Duke gave a clinic. I was very young, I was in my early 20s, and he told us that we could do anything we want musically. And all one has to do is break down the elements of what makes every style tick. And primarily what makes a style tick is intrinsic in the note choices and in the rhythm. And if you understand those parameters, then you can find yourself moving into an expression that's um, referencing from that kind of, of, of a style. And so George Duke really inspired me with that clinic. You know, classical, you can break it down. Jazz, you can break it down. You know, Afrobeat, you can break it down. Brazilian style, you can break it down. Just understand those two elements. Note choices, how do you figure those out? Well, from what scales are those melodies derived from? And then the rhythms, all right, how do you subdivide the beats? The Connected Singer. You're also um, a founder, member of the Bobby McFerrin's Voicestra. So it would be really interesting to hear about, you know, how you became involved in that or what the original aim was for this, uh, this project and what it was like to work in such a sort of raw form of vocalization, if you like, and what that yeah. you learned from that, what you could pass on to other singers from this experience. And it'd be great to hear some of your thoughts. With that. Okay. Uh, I'll try to be concise because that, that topic in and of itself could be a two hour <laughs> The, the experience of the voicestra, you know, that, that whole thing is such an incredible experience for me. I was a blessed soul to have been able to be in that. The way it went down was that I lived in San Francisco. I was singing in a jazz ensemble at the time called Jazz Mouth. We did jazz ensemble singing. There were eight of us. Molly Holm was the director. She was incredible. She was such an organizer and she got all the music together. But, you know, we played around. We were, uh, there were a, a lot of jazz trios and ensembles like that at the time. It was kind of a thing. Yeah. So this was back in, uh, you know, this was in the 80s. And uh, Bobby McFerrin at that time was on, he lived in Utah, in Salt Lake City. And he was the music director for the Ice Follies. I don't know if you know who they are. <laughs> the Ice Follies is kind of like a circus that travels around the country. And they, you know, they have all these fun and, you know, show stuff, but it's all on ice, right? But it's kind of like a circus on ice. And it's live musicians with a whole orchestra. And Bobby McFerrin was their music director because, you know, he's an incredible piano player. That was, in fact, his first 
uh, ambition. And he, but he wanted to be like the next Keith Jarrett, really. Oh, wow. Yeah, but he was incredible at a ranger. You know, he grew up in a family where his father was a classical baritone. Yeah. His father was the first person of color that broke the color barrier at the, uh, at the Metropolitan uh, Opera in New York. Oh, amazing. Uh, his mother was an incredible jazz and classical pianist. So he grew up in this very enriched environment. Anyway, so Bobby decides to move to San Francisco from Salt Lake City. And of course, when he arrives, he wants to meet anybody and everybody who's doing jazz, vocal jazz. So, of course, we were one of the top groups in that idiom in the area at the time. So, of course, we met Bobby McFerrin, you know, because he, 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 he said, why are you guys singing? And so we would just have jam sessions. I mean, this was back when Bobby was just Bobby. You know, he wasn't a star. <laughs> and then uh, what happened was, so we were like just friends, you know, just hanging out. You know, we worked at music camps together with people like Whoopi Goldberg were there. I mean, we, we had a lot of fun. So anyway, Bobby puts together a band. And then because John Hendricks lived in the community, uh, and of course, Bobby and John Hendricks came together. Now, John Hendricks is a jazz vocal icon. So when John Hendricks was going to go on his summer tour to do all of the jazz summer festivals around the world, he hired Bobby to join him. So um, when Bobby joined them, that's when he got signed. When Bobby got famous, he didn't forget us. <laughs> <laughs> so Bobby puts out his first album, you know, he wants a Grammy for that. Puts out his second album, he wants a bunch of Grammys for that. Then he puts out uh, something with the Manhattan Transfer. So anyway, finally, you know, then he puts out Don't Worry, Be Happy. That went number one. He made tons of millions of dollars. So now Bobby's like, you know, all right, I want to do something really different. I, think I want to go back to improvisational music, but I want to do it in the tribal, organic way that it was done in, in, with indigenous cultures. And so what he started doing, he started doing impromptu shows. So like Patty Cathcart of Tuck and Patty, uh, Bonnie Raitt, uh, he just oh, yeah. call in people and he says, we're not going to rehearse, just show up and we're going to do this gig and we're just going to improvise. So we started doing that with him, you know, <laughs> and that, that was his way of kind of testing the waters about working with a group. We didn't know it at the time. <laughs> so we... Do the experiment. Exactly. And so finally, finally he comes around to the fact of like, okay, I'm going to do a group. And so he held auditions. And of course, we were the ones who auditioned. And I'm going to tell you, now he knew my voice because, you know, we've been doing jam sessions and stuff for years. Yeah. And, uh, and so, but when it came to the audition for the formal group, I just figured, okay, I'll go in and do my thing and that's it. Well, the audition involved, you have to sing an acapella piece. Then you have to sing a piece accompanied with piano. Then you have to do an ensemble piece, like let's see your harmony skills. Then you have to do an improvisational solo yourself, right? Then you have to do a theatrical piece. So in other words, Bobby might say something. This was something he said. All right, but Raz, I want you to imagine you've been trapped in a box for 20 years. And throughout the full time you've been in this box trapped, you've been trying to find a way out. You've been pushing to the left, to the right, from behind. You've been pushing to the right. One day it occurs to you to maybe push up. So you push up. Oh, my God. The lid lifts. This is your way out. So, okay. You put, oh, my God. But there's so much light coming in. I've been in this box for 20 years in stark darkness. 
the light is just so oppressive because I've been in dark. So I want you to play out that whole thing, Raz. You're seeking a way out, discovering that that's the way out, but yet you can't just get out right away. You have to slowly get acclimated to the light. And then finally, you're free from the box. So I want you to act that out, Raz. And the whole time you're acting it out, you're going to do a vocal soundtrack. (laughs) You're going to do a vocal soundtrack while you're acting it out. So these were the kinds of auditions we were doing. And you had to do the audition in front of everybody else that's there to audition. So I went in and I thought I did a fairly good job. And, you know, he says, okay, we'll get back to you. And he knows me. He's acting all formal and everything, like I'm a number, right? So, so, then, uh, so then he calls back and he says, um, uh, I want you to come down and audition again. A what? Oh, okay. <laughs> a call back. So, so every theatrical scenario is really something weird, something else. <laughs> and you got to do the solo piece. You got to do the improvisation. You got to do the choral thing. I'm, you know, Wow, wow. And so you do it a second time. <laughs> All right, well, we'll get back to you, Raz. Oh. <laughs> a week later, uh, you know, Raz, uh, that was a good, I'm going to hear you again, man. Come back. <laughs> Come back? You already know what I sound like, man. I've been singing with you for off and on for a couple of years. You know my voice. <laughs> okay, 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 fine, I'll go back. <laughs> Third time. And by this time, you are like, because he really works you. He pushes you beyond anything you would ever do. And it's exhausting and it's, you're vulnerable and you're, you, feel can't, you, know, you feel really um, like you're reaching your, your, your limit as far as like where you might go. Yeah. All right, all right. The third one's cool. I'm, I know I'm in the, uh, Raz, uh, I need to see you again, man. <laughs> the fourth callback. Finally, after the fourth time, I get the gig. Yay. <laughs> Here's the other thing that's really important about him. He auditioned people from all over the country. Okay. Wow. They were yeah. flying in from New York, you know, Austin, you know, from everywhere. LA. So, and I, we heard these singers incredible. Yeah. People were singing their asses off. So we knew who was like up for the gig. And I thought I might not get this gig. These people are singing. They're out singing me. Right. But in the end, Bobby picked 12 singers. And then I'm looking at the singers and I'm going, why did he pick her? I mean, she's okay, but her range wasn't that great. I remember the other girl, she, was, she didn't pick her, but he's picking her. Oh, and why did he pick him? Because I remember Larry, man, he was, he killed it. But this guy, you know, he kind of kept the range and, but he picked him. I'm, I'm just kind of confused because a lot of the great singers he didn't pick. Uh-huh. And then he said, okay, you guys are in the group. But oh, don't get comfortable because um, we're going to rehearse for three months and then I'm going to decide in days and he gets cut. Wow. And, and, and it was really cool because we rehearsed it. I had a big studio, a big dance studio in San Francisco. So we used that as our studio space. It was really cool. Yeah. So, so anyway, after three months, so... We come back around and sure enough, he can two people. And I realized what happened. This is what Bobby was looking for in a singer. And this really helped me. It really wasn't such an education. He was looking for not the best voices. He wanted a certain kind of a person. I want the kind of person that will go to the edge 
I want to push you to the point where you're about to break and you're saying, I'm good with that. He wanted people that would be okay with being in a vulnerable situation with the music where you're out there without a safety net, but yet you can hold it down and not get stared and, and recoil. That's what he was looking for. He wanted people that had the patience to work and grind and get into the details to find the nuances, to figure out, because he needed that kind of attention and patience to really make the music work in a way where. And so the reason why those two people got canned during that three-month period, one of the guys that got canned, I remember when it happened, he said, because Bobby had us only singing long tones for about three weeks, nothing else, <laughs> long tones in every part of the range, nothing else. <laughs> now, this one guy, about two weeks in, he says, Bobby, when are we going to start singing, man? I mean, I want to do some New York voices. When are we going to start improvising? What about Manhattan transfer stuff? Bobby said, oh, no. Uh, don't worry, Trevor. Don't, we'll get to that and make a little note. <laughs> <laughs> then there was one other singer. She would come in and, you know, her voice wasn't always that. It wasn't always like centered. You know, she was a little tired on occasion. And, and it was quite clear that we found out later that she was doing ecstasy, you know, binges on the weekend. <laughs> so she would come and do the rehearsals on Monday and she would be a little off, you know. And Bobby just noticed. Didn't say anything. And he never said it. He never said anything. But when that third month deadline came around, you're gone and you're gone. And we understood why. Oh, too impatient, not responsible enough to take care of a voice. Wow. I learned so much from that. It wasn't, it wasn't, it wasn't about what you could do. It was about who you were. I think that's also another really important message for people that want to pursue a music career, I think, you know, you have to have some kind of resilience. You've got to keep that passion, that fire alive. And as you say, you've got to learn life skills as well, I think. You know, in anything, you've got to have patience. And then it becomes less and more about you. It becomes more about, as you say, the project, the community, you know, music as a tool to bring people together. And then you possibly don't want too many divas in there. <laughs> <laughs> it really, we had a, we had a few, <laughs> but uh, the thing is, yeah, Bobby really gave people space, but because he was Bobby, he could really, he could, he could really contain it. Yeah. And that was the other thing he taught us. He taught us how to listen because when you have to pay attention to detail. And, and so Michael, you can understand this is why I was so attracted to, to CVI because that's exactly what they do as it, as it pertains to technique. The Connected Singer. A quick note, listeners, uh, I don't know what the audio equivalent of NB is, but I just wanted to take this opportunity to say that Raz is going to talk a lot about vocal methods in the next section. Now, he's most recently completed a three-year voice education at the Complete Vocal Institute in Denmark, hence why he talks about Catherine Sadlin, the founder of CBI in Denmark, and he's worked with so many top vocal coaches and learned so much that he's integrated into his fantastic teaching. If you're interested in finding out more about vocal techniques, there are lots of resources online. And, you know, I love learning new vocal languages. I'm always reading about them. And it's really fun and, and really useful to find out more. There are some interesting books, uh, like The Voice Teacher's Cookbook by Brian Winnie which is a very interesting book interviewing lots of different teachers about their, their methodologies. 
is also training contemporary commercial singers by Elizabeth Benson, which has interviews again with top voice coaches about how they approach lots of different aspects of vocal technique. And it will hopefully give you some more tips and ways to work with your voice. And as this podcast goes on, we hope to share even more perspectives and insights with all the fascinating people we'll be talking to. So stay tuned, check it out, and we hope you enjoy the rest of Raz's amazing interview. The Connected Signal. Excellent segue, by the way, because that was my next question. <laughs> it's uh, read my mind. Because actually, I mean... Ugh. There's hours of stuff that I want to ask you about all of that experience, and we both do. But as well as working with these incredible artists, you know, you've also studied with the creme de la creme of voice pedagogues and researchers, and you you know that world inside out. You know, people like Seth Riggs, James Sharp, Catherine Sadlin, but and we know the voice world has lots of camps, lots of groups, and I'm from this camp and I'm from that camp. But you've seen it all so how has it influenced your teaching and what can we learn from all these different methods and approaches and 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 big big names in that world well you know what it is is a it's kind of like how Catherine will speak about how uh, people you're trying to reach people and uh, you know you're trying to help them with how to comprehend how the voice works to give them a way to implement and uh, speak through singing and uh, like Catherine said, you know, we, we went into learning types one time, remember, in, the, in our studies. It was kinesthetic, auditive, uh, things like, you know, imaginative. Well, techniques are also that way. Like, I find myself that in order to reach somebody, it might be actually an SLS approach, or it might be a somatic vocal approach technique that uh, might reach them in a way. It could be CVT that might be the way in to get where they can understand what they're communicating. So, you know, it's like having different languages, right? So, so I, I studied with Ken Taplin and we were in Hawaii for a little while. That was interesting. And what you also can do is you can kind of see how the, the techniques are in a way saying similar things as far as how the voice works, but then how you talk about it can usually trigger something in, in the mind of a singer that where if you talked about it differently, uh, it'd it be vague. So I like to see how other people talk about it so that if at any time I'm teaching, it might be how Jeanette Lovitri talked about it as to how it's going to make sense to this singer, where it might be Catherine's angle that might make a sense to this singer. And believe it or not, I've used Seth Riggs stuff for neutral stuff because I've worked with singers that only know how to sing loud. I would mm. love to sound like Marilyn McCoo. I would love to sound like Nora Jones, but they only can sound like, you know, Ann Wilson and, um, and, uh, and Robert Townsend, you know? So, so you're trying to tell problem. them. Yeah. <laughs> so actually to tell you the truth, the sex Rick's method is quite, it's a wonderful way to help direct people to a neutral mode. Mm. So, you know, you take somatic and, and SLS, sometimes that's more effective for some people to get them in the neutral than even CVT sometimes. So it's really good to have these, uh, you know, you can just, it's like a great producer in the studio is somebody that has listened to every kind of music. Mm -hmm. So that when you're in there working with somebody, you can draw from something you heard back when you were in New Orleans, or maybe when I was in Norway, and we were doing that, that weird camp in, in, in cultural music. You know, it's a, you know, cause then you need the ideas. So you want to expose yourself to as much as you can. 
Because half the time, I don't even remember, like, how I know some of the stuff I know. Like, something will come up as a way to address a problem. I'm going, where did that come from? Mm. I was talking to James Sharp not long ago. I, well, okay, eight years ago. <laughs> and uh, we were just having dinner. She was one of my earlier coaches. And I said, you know, Jane, that vowel migration thing you taught me was so, 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 um, so useful. And she said, what? You know, vowel migration, vowel migration. Vowel migration? What do you mean vowel migration, Raz? Well, I said, you taught me vowel migration. You know how you change the shape of the vowels as you migrate through the lane? You taught me that. I taught you that, but I never called it vowel migration. <laughs> I don't even know what that means. And so I'm going, so where did I get that? <laughs> you know what I mean? I've been around for 67 years, you know. So after a while, you forget because, you know, so that's just it. Every singer, wide open ears. Listen to everything and anything and figure out what makes it tick. Mm. Figure out what makes it tick. Have you ever actually thought about writing, writing a book or, yeah. you know, pedagogically speaking? I'm writing a book, okay. but here's my deal. I've been, writing, uh, I've been writing it for about 10 years. <laughs> It'll get done one of these days. But here's the deal, Michael. There are so many great technique books out. So many. Catherine's book. Um, there's this, uh, there's this great book called the vocal wisdom that, that Bobby, uh, shared with me. Uh, there's so many great techniques, so many great books. I don't need to write another technique book. They're out there. What I'm writing my book is it's a memoir. It's a memoir of my life, but here's what I'm doing. I'm using my life as a way to speak to different vocal concerns. So like, you know, supports one concern with singing. Uh, moving through the range without a break is another, right? Uh, um, uh, volume, working with dynamics, um, sound color, right? So I'm taking experiences of my life and how I learned about perhaps when I was moving through a transition in life where I needed the support to get through it in a way where there weren't some sense of a dysfunction. We, we go through these things in our lives. You go through changes. And when you go through them in a way where they're more smooth, you have the support by others and maybe by your community and maybe by your own sense of faith to get you through it in a way where you can move through a transition that might be quite arduous and disruptive, but with the support you can get through from one point to the next without there being a discrepancy. So that's when you're moving through a transition where support's needed in a certain way. You have to be balanced, right? So then I can talk about an instance in my life where I had that experience where somebody had my back. And then I can talk about support and moving through the range, mitigating any unintentional breaks. And I, I want to help, help people see that their lives can actually be a resource for how to work into what they're trying to do with voice and with anything, dance, arts, writing, anything. You look to your life. And then I try to, I try to equate it with how, the, how we move as, a, as an expressive tool. Mm -hmm. Sounds amazing. So just to um, move on to another area of your life, it's, it's almost like having this is your life. Did you ever have that program in America? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying that. I thought it's like, this is your life. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, another area that you've worked in has been backing vocals. Yeah. This is also a, a very different area, actually, than being the solo artist. You have to have a different set of skills and, and again, a different attitude, I think, towards... Uh, your singing and your performing. So do you have any advice for singers that are wanting to pursue this career path, let's say? 
you, you have to be versatile as far as what you can do with your voice. Because background singing is about supporting. You have to work in a way where you're in, in concert with others. The blend, you have to think like you're in a single voice. So in terms of how you're phrasing, uh, it's got to be locked in so that rhythm is really uh, tight, uh, dynamic. Uh, sound color, somebody's got a bright sound and somebody's got a dark sound. Uh, that's not going to blend intonationally speaking. So you really to use your voice in a wide range of ways to adapt to different dynamics, different colors, different attitudes. Well, you have to assume characters that are going to support whatever the lead instrument is trying to communicate. So you have to be quite skilled as a background singer. Um, lead singers have to be, they have to know how to communicate in a way where they're storytellers and can bring people into an experience as if uh, you're right there in the moment. You have to really create um, an environment that people drop into so that you have people totally forgetting about where they've been, where they're going to go, what's next. But in that moment, they're in the story and they're emotionally connected to it. So a lead singer has to be a voice that can stick out and, and, and message. The ensemble is where you're there as a foil to act as a, as a support for that function, the background singer. Thinking more orchestrally, too where a lead singer is thinking more about delivering the message. Yeah, yeah. And so you have, to be, you have to think of yourself more like a trumpet or a sax, where the background singers are like the horn section or a string section. Unless, unless the trumpet is out there and then the background singers are also going to be trumpets. So we got trumpets, like those Aretha Franklin background singers, they're all trumpets. <laughs> <laughs> or like a, a, a gospel choir, they're all trumpets. Everybody's in, everybody's in metal, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, so everybody sings out. So, um, but ordinarily, sometimes it's contrast, and you have to kind of know how to do that. The lead vocal is penetrating where the rest of the vocal is starting. So you have to really know, have to work together with uh, one another and have a consensus as to like how it's going to sound. And really uh, have a real good sense of where the music is coming from. So that emotionally speaking, you're really supporting the lead singer. The role of the background singer, as it is for every other instrument in the ensemble, is to support the lead voice. The lead voice's job, and this is what makes a great lead singer. The lead singer's job is to understand what the message is. And their job is to be the messenger, to get caught up in what it is that's having to be said. And make sure that it's not about the singer, it's about getting the song out. It's not about the singer, it's about the song. And then background singers and the instrumentalists, it's not about, it's about supporting the lead instrument to deliver the song. A background yeah. vocal role is an accompaniment role. Yeah. So that's a different skill from being a, a, a front and forward person. <clears throat> yeah. So if, uh, if you wanted to take that career path and you were set on doing that, what would you advise? Join vocal ensembles. Join vocal ensembles, like join a group and learn how to sing in harmony with others. And depending on what styles you might want to sing, and because, you know, there's different dynamics. If you're doing classical, that's something different from like R&B. Hmm? Yeah. And that's going to be real different than if you're doing a Appalachia Mountain mountain music. Uh, that's a whole other way of singing harmony, man. So, <laughs> uh, and then if, or if you're doing, you know, like... Uh, you know, Bulgarian singing. I mean, that's a different way of singing in a harmonic situation. Yeah. So what you want to do is join a choir that's working in a way that, that meets your aesthetic. Yeah. So that you're learning the kinds of tools when singing in an ensemble that'll lend itself to that style. Yeah. 
But I would say if you want to really be a good background singer, learn how to sing in every style. Yeah. So join a gospel choir, join a classical choir, you know, join a country and Western, you know, you know, hoot nanny group, you know, uh, join a jazz group, you learn jazz vocal harmonies because jazz harmonies, huh? There's no vibrato in jazz harmony. No. No, no. You got to learn how to sing a straight tone yeah. in, in, for jazz harmonies. So if you always have a, a, a vibrato in your voice, which is what a lot of gospel singers do, you know, a lot of guys, they have vibrato all over the place. If their vibratos are operating at the same rate, it's cool. Yeah. But a jazz, you can't take that into a jazz choir. <laughs> no. it's, a lot of singers don't know how to get rid of a vibrato. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You got to learn how to do all of that. Straight tone, vibrato. And then you got to learn how to change the rates of the vibrato. And then sound color, you know, if you're doing something more formal. Can you give me a dark sound color? Nah, man, I just, I just sing R&B all the time. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, baby, don't you not? But I need a dark sound color because, you know, so you, you got to learn how to be very versatile as a background singer. A lead singer only has to know, like, how to get it across in order to get people listening. I've worked with lead singers who don't know anything about technique. And it blows my mind because I, re- I used to drive up to these ranches, these rock singers that have, like, Grammys on their walls. And I figured, wow, they know a lot about music. They got hit records. And I, we started training. I don't say anything, but it's like, <laughs> wow. wow. And then I think to myself, it's like, you really don't have to know that much about technique to be a star. <laughs> no. You, you just have to know how to connect with an audience. That's all you need. If you can find one little gimmick that really connects with an audience, you could be rich and not know a thing about singing. <laughs> yeah. But that's a big part of your work now as well, right? Is that, you know, you've, you've got a lot of praise for your work with vocal rehab and, uh, you know, some big laryngologists have, you know, given you a lot of great testimonials. But why do you think... Uh, rehabilitation, it's, it's, it's now a buzzword in the voice world. Why is it so important these days? And how, you know, how should we better take care of ourselves, really? See, singing is like, you know, how Catherine would talk about singing is like talking. Maybe I said that. It's like, I'd say singing is talking in a more animated way. Yeah. You're just talking, but you're just making it more colorful because it's all about communication, right? So I might say, I love you, man. But if I said, I love you, man. Oh, man, yeah, okay, I'm with you. See, so if, if I sung it, then it's like, I think he really does love me. <laughs> but if I just said it, maybe, so that's why we sing, because I really want you to understand. And if I say it like this, maybe it'll go in a lot deeper, more accurately if I sing it than if I just say it, right? All right, so we use our voices because we're born with them. And it's quite natural to speak. So when people want to sing, they just think, okay, I'm going to speak. Like I always do, just make it more colorful. But what they don't realize is that what your body has learned to do over the 20 years that you've been living is to provide the energy and the settings that are appropriate for what you need when you speak. But now, oh, oh, you mean you want to go up the range and make it louder? Uh, Well, then you can't do what you're doing here if you expect for that to work as well and and as safely as when you're here. A lot of people don't make that assessment. They don't know. And they start singing because sing is natural. You know, you talk, it's natural. So then they go up there, but not knowing that they have to actually revise the way things are configured in the instrument. So they'll sing and they'll work for a while until the muscles fatigue, at, after which point then, you know, so 
some constriction sets in, and then you might have some irritation before long. You got some swelling, and they're going, "Well, man, I mean, it was working, but yeah, but how long were you?" Staying? And if these muscles fatigue, where they can't sustain that kind of energy investment over duration of time, it's going to end up here. So it's very easy for people, especially beginners, when they want to just throw themselves into what they just heard Whitney saying, what they just heard, you know, uh, uh, Trent Reznor saying, you know, (laughs) these young singers, I want to sound like, you know, (laughs) you know, give me, give me a lamb of God, you know, so it's like, so, and they go into it without knowing. So then that's when they circle back. What do I, what did I forget? What did I miss? And then that's when they take lessons. But before that happens, they've already kind of thrown their, thrown their voices into a, a, into a compromise. Now, re, now uh, rehabilitation can be something quite easy. We, you know, it, it's like you can just tease out tension. That's primarily why people have a problem when the support's out of balance. So um, you just educate people as to how to do things in a way. Uh, ENTs will send the, the students to me after they've uh, explored what's going on. And then given the situation, oftentimes it's just more of a matter of relaxing constrictions while you're getting the delivery systems of the instrument reactivated. And so you have to understand that it's a very simple thing. You, know, you can't have tension uh, obstructing the ways in which the voice needs to function to provide the sounds. You need some sense of energy investment. So we know how the core needs to be engaged as a way to keep a balanced way of air moving through the vocal cords to give you a nice, regular, and, and a, a real um, synchronized vibratory pattern. So you want to educate people about how the voice works. And then when they have that understanding, they'll take better care. Hydration, of course, there's a lot of things you have to stay away from. But rehabilitation, oftentimes when they come to me, they've already gone through the, uh, through the recovery process. The doctors will send me the, uh, the uh, photos of the, uh, of the status of things within the vocal tract. You can see the vocal cords. And then, you know, it's quite clear what the recovery might be. If it's just pre-notes, vocal rest, we take care of that. And then you want to re-educate somebody as to how to get back into the voice in a more deliberate, conscious um, skillful way. Do you also find that a lot of your singers that need rehabilitation are also coming from a burnout situation, overwork, stress, performance anxiety, um, anxiety that comes from the pressure of the business, that the pressure of a grueling schedule, all those kind of things um, can contribute to the, the malfunction of the voice. Are you working with these kind of singers as well? Yeah, so... What a lot what a lot of people are scared because they're really out of touch with what singing, what the function of singing is. Uh, they've been criticized. Uh, they're, they're made to think that they're not good. Uh, stress can certainly shut down the voice. Um, so can uh, depression. But anxiety, due to the fact that you're, you're not going to, that you don't feel safe or that you might be critiqued um, negatively, or if you don't know if you're good enough, you know, it's all about, you know, your sense of not feeling capable or being judged by someone who thinks you're not good or not capable. So what you have to do is you have to always bring people back to the core of what it is singing is, what, what its function is. Yeah. People get, or they get externally directed and they get out of touch. So singing is about communication. Yeah. It's not about being perfect. It's not about singing right. It's not about comparing yourself to someone else. It's more about being in your own essence and being in touch with what it is that you have to communicate and stay totally 
entrenched in that state of being and deliver it. So it's not about, it's like more important about like, how can I love you when you're singing? When you're singing, you're looking at who it is you're directing. Like I'm doing this because I want to love you. I'm not singing to you. I'm loving you. So in other words, you got to get people more in touch with what the function of singing is. It's about connection. It's not about being good or sounding great. What you want to do is make sure that what it is you're trying to deliver is getting across. So it's like, like, how can I make you understand me? What do you need right now? Singing in my mind is not entertainment. Singing is not, it can be entertaining, but that's not the, that's not where you're coming from. I'm not here to entertain you. I'm sorry. I don't teach that way. I teach from a standpoint of like, you got to get up there and make people feel something. You got to make them think that when you're speaking, it's authentic and you're coming from your, from your core. So you have to get in touch with things that you're passionate about and things that you can, that can matter to you. Otherwise, what's the point? I don't like to, uh, I don't like teaching from a standpoint of, I, I don't train entertainers. I train artists that have something to say. There's other coaches that train in. I know a lot of coaches. It's all about preparing people for the voice, uh, entertaining somebody at Vegas show. Uh, you know, I help people with auditions, but even when I do that, it's all about tell your story. Uh, don't try to impress. Uh-uh. So it's like, because when people go to a show, they're looking for what I refer to as what I call the real. When you go to a show, you want to feel like the singer. At some point in the show, they want to feel like something happened that seemed organic, authentic, sincere, and, and in some way spontaneous. Mm-hmm. Like the moment, all of a sudden, something happened that was unexpected. Everybody wants something like that when they go to a show. And that's the, singer, that's yeah. the singer's job, is to create a kind of a conducive environment where that is permitted. So to do that, you got to get out of your head. Yeah. You got to get steeped in what it is that the song is trying to say, not about, am I looking okay? Yeah. All right, do I sound fine? So you have to train people to really drop into that kind of an experience. And when that's happening, the anxieties go away because there's no room for anxiety if you're still steeped in what it is that you're trying to help people feel because you're feeling it. Here's a, here's, here's a perfect example. I was asked to sing at a wedding. And they, went, they gave me this song to sing at the time when they exchanged their vowels. So I sing the song. After I finish the song, I get back into the congregation. And uh, so we're witnessing the rest of the ceremony of the ritual of the marriage. Now, when I get back in the crowd, I'm standing next to the guy that's going to sing for the band when they have the party afterwards, you know, the reception, right? Now, this is a blind guy. He, he can't see. And he's the lead singer. He's kind of like a Stevie Wonder. He plays the piano and he's the lead singer of this group. The band is going to play later where everybody parties and celebrates the wedding. So I stand next to him. I've never met this guy before. I met him just that day. But when I get back into the crowd, I'm standing next to him. And after about 30 seconds, we're listening to the rest of the officiating and everything. Uh, He takes his elbow and kind of hits me. And he says, hey, Raz. And I said, yeah, John, what's up? He says, hey, man, uh, nice job, bro. Um, uh, you, You sang with a lot of control. I sang with a lot of control. Yeah, yeah, you sang with a lot of control, man. Good job. Now, this is a wedding, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and I sing a love song, right? Now, what you want to hear after you sing a song, like a love song at a wedding, oh, Raz, my eyes just teared up. I, I was just so, 
so moved and oh or, or Raz, I'm gonna get married tomorrow. That was so such a lovely, inspiring song, or or my heart fluttered. Oh, I got goosebumps. Oh, Raz, I, I'm gonna make up with my my husband tomorrow. You know, that's what you want to hear, right? Yeah. <laughs> but this guy told me, you sang with a lot, now that's code among singers, right? Uh, you sang with a lot of control. So what he was telling me was, yeah, Raz, that long tone at the end of the tune, perfect. You nailed it, man. I'm, I was impressed. Oh, 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 and when you did that little lick at the end of the bridge, oh, that was cool. <laughs> nice agility. Oh, wow, you didn't forget any of the lyrics. Every word was spot on. You sung every, all the words were perfect. But I didn't feel a goddamn thing. <laughs> yeah. That's what he was saying. But, but I didn't feel nothing. And he was absolutely right. He heard it because when I was singing that song, that's exactly what I was doing. Okay, Raz, remember the words. Remember the words, man. Don't forget. Oh, that long tone, brother. Make sure you hold it all the way out through to the third bar. That's exactly what was on my mind. The whole... I wanted to make sure the song was perfect, but nobody felt a thing. The Connected Singer. For more information on Raz as an artist and his vocal coaching services, head over to www.razkennedy.com. He can also be found on all social media and relevant links can be found in this episode's podcast information. The Connected Singer. And I, I think that, that also, to something I guess we should we have to address in the, this conversation is that music has been at the heart of some of the key moments in, in, in history. And, and you've certainly seen some massive change, social change in the States in, in your lifetime. So um, these, are, these are very troubled times. But how can musicians get involved, affect positive social change? What, where, where can the voice be, be used? Well, when I was growing up, you know, like I say, uh, my, my family, my family moved to California from the South. They, uh, that's what black people had to do. They had, we migrated out of the South because it was just so, uh, you couldn't live there. The, you know, just the lynchings and the, just the segregation. And the, so my folks moved out. So, I mean, I was very much entranced in the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement. That was a big thing, but in the illegal war in Vietnam. So, yeah, the music through the struggle was how we kept people focused on the goal, keeping the eye on the prize. And the music kept folks inspired, and especially in... In the, in, the, in the black culture of this country. It's, it's true in every culture. We use songs and we, we have to inspire one another. Music is how. We, like music tends to get things through in a way that just simple words can't. So, yeah, during the civil rights movement, we had Harry Belafonte. We had Nina Simone, you know. So, so you know, we had... Sam Cooke talking about a change is going to come. See, that's what I mean. Music for me is not entertainment. It never has been. Music for black people is healing, inspiring, keeping people alive, 
keeping this struggle going. So music is not entertainment. It's about healing. It's about inspiring. It's about community. Music can get people to the polls. You can get people to push enough so that people will have to change in the interest and on behalf of the welfare of its citizens. So we need music as a way to motivate and to inspire and to essentially create and cultivate community. That's what music is for. It's the glue that brings us together. Music is just an excuse for people to find some reason to get together. When you go to a concert, you're basically at a ritual. You're basically at a ritual. You're there, and as a lead singer, you're the minister, and you're there to channel and draw down the energies, pull up the gods and goddesses, draw down the ancestors. And in that concert, everybody's in a ritual, and you're the ringleader as a lead singer to create community. And that's why it's so vitally important today, because we need community and we need to be united to make so that we're all taking care of one another. And I think that's a really important message to send out uh, these days to bring people back together. And you're also very um, passionate and dedicated about supporting singers sort of find their own voice also in an artistic way as well. So when you're doing this, um, what advice actually would you give singers to find their artistic voice, to perhaps become leaders, as you're talking about lead singers, to become leaders, to, in, to encourage this community spirit, but also do it through their own artistic, individual and authentic way? Because that's what music is all about as well, is, is expression and your authentic expression. So what would be your, your advice for that or how would you coach someone to perhaps give them confidence to do that? Right. This kind of ties into my book, you know, the memoir. Like I want people to yeah. kind of drop into what's real for them right in the moment. Like you drop into the experience as it's showing up right in the moment. And you don't put up any, you don't edit yourself. You don't throw up any, you know, rail guards. You don't, you just allow, you drop into the experience of whatever it might be. Maybe you're going through, uh, a real challenge by the fact that you lost a dear one. And so there's grief going on, or maybe you just won $10 billion. So there's a lot of exuberance. So whatever it is, you want to drop into the experience and then you just allow whatever you go into what's called a stream of consciousness or a stream. It's like, you know, you just allow the voice to speak in whatever way it rolls out unedited to speak from your truth. That's it. And if you want to scream, you want to go low, you want to go high, you want to sustain, you want to take it down to a whisper, fine. But speak your truth. Because you want people to yeah. get connected to what's real for them. Yeah. It's got to be organic. And then you give that voice. And then as you give it voice, this is where, then this is where technique comes in. And you might say, all right, now you might bring in a little energy this way to keep the sound more, more secure there. Or you might need to bring in a little bit more of a smile to help so that the sound has that bright color that you're bringing into your expression to reflect glee and a playful nature because that's what you're feeling. So you can augment that by just bringing, put a little smile on it. You don't say much, you just bring little tweaks, little tweaks, and you, let, you kind of help them lead their own way. You just kind of give them a directive. But let them stay really okay with the fact that 
who they are and how it's coming up is, is safe and legitimate. It's okay. Yeah. And, then, <clears throat> and then what you can do is you can start allowing them to start moving that into song. And let them, and so what I do is I go to the piano and I just kind of listen for like where they're going and I'll find a harmonic support for it that I'm thinking they're heading and then you can kind of hear where they're going and then you can play something else. And you try to help them feel very authentic in themselves just as it's coming out organically. And then the, and so that's one way. And then the other way is to tell people to mimic sounds. So what I often do, because see, a lot of people think, well, I don't want to sound like her or sound like him. But what it is, is that you have to help people know that the sound that you think you've got now as to how you speak, the volumes, where in the range you might be finding yourself settling, is learned. You're, you've learned from the time you popped out. Dialect, the language, how you walk, how loud, how quiet, by who's around you. You learn from osmosis. So don't think that this, this voice is your voice. I want people to take the singers that they like and mimic. So in other words, great singing means listening. So what we're doing at, at the first process is helping somebody to really understand how to listen from within, like how to draw it out from your core. You have to listen from the inside. Singing music in general takes a great capacity to know how to listen. And then after you learn how to listen from what's within, then you want to like listen from what's outside. So take all of the sounds or the singers that you like and just listen to them. Listen to how they, all oh, that little creak, oh, all oh, that funny little pingy voice or, or, or that really round open dynamic just and try to and just just kind of try to emulate it in some way just kind of copy it so you're listening from the outside and you're listening from the inside you want to open your ears you have to learn how to listen so that because anytime we say anything anytime we iterate or, or express we're coming from something that's happening first we don't just speak in a vacuum we either feel something, hear something, we think something, and then that you give it voice. So you want to learn how to listen to all of those things you're feeling, thinking, imagining, and then speak from that. And then you want, you want to listen from the outside and try to imitate what you're hearing. Because when you're listening from the outside to the things that you're attracted to, to the things that you find appealing, the things that you like, you're actually listening to yourself. When you think about language, when you say, I like it, what you're saying is, I'm like it. So in other words, what it is I'm hearing out there that's drawing me out is already resonating within you. That's what's drawing you there because it's in you to begin with. Yeah. So you want to listen from the outside and the inside, and then that's how you start cultivating who you are as a singer. Because the outside is really you too, yeah. if you're drawn to it. You're drawn, yeah. you're being, you're being drawn, the outside is actually a mirror to what's already happening inside you to begin with. And you have to understand it from that angle. You're always looking at yourself. Always. Yeah. So if I'm hearing that and I like it, that's you, brother. So then what you want to do is to figure out what makes it tick. And then what you're actually doing is you're figuring out how your voice is actually being cultivated. So you're figuring out how your voice. Yeah. So that's the way you build in. That's a, one of the ways that you can build in a, a, a process to help people find it. And it's an ongoing thing. You know, so you don't, you know, it's like, it's a practice actually. I think you're right. I think that approach in itself, getting the singer to think about what it is their wish is and what they want rather than telling them what they should want. 
because then, yeah, they become dependent. And that's what we are trying to avoid as well as creating uh, more independence and authenticity, of course. Yes, yes. Absolutely fabulous. Raz, I think we've had such an amazing discussion with you. Um, <laughs> and, and it, you know, it's like we were saying, we can't deny that these are, are grim times, but this whole, uh, I'm sure you agree, Julie, this whole conversation has but at least brought me a lot of positivity that maybe um, wasn't there a couple of hours ago. And it, it kind of reminds me that a big meaning to using your voice, you know, yeah, Michael, it's, it's a very deep thing, you know, uh, to say, but it, but it is, why, why do we sing? Why do we use our voices? It's, it is important. Absolutely. I have to agree, Michael, just to endorse that, the way that you talk about music, the, the passion and the soul and the spirit and the love and the meaning that you put behind it and your whole purpose is an absolute inspiration. And I've also felt like, wow, it's not just about, as you say, learning the notes. It's not just about singing the song. It's about communicating the message. And we all know this, but it's actually about delving into yourself and getting to know yourself even more, which will aid your expression and get other, and, and allow other people to understand you and to connect with you. And I think that's what this whole this whole podcast is trying to achieve is to connect people and to connect themselves with themselves. <laughs> and this is what you've absolutely expressed throughout this whole interview. Um, and that's why it's been absolutely worthwhile. And we'd love to have you on again because there's so much more to cover. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you, Raz. Thank you so, so much. The Connected Singer. Thanks to all of you out there for listening to our podcast today. All information relating to our podcast and guests can be found on our Facebook page, The Connected Singer. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter. If you have enjoyed this episode's podcast, we would really appreciate your support by subscribing and helping us to continue in creating a connected community of listeners and specialists connected to the field of singing and beyond. Take care of yourselves and each other and see you next time. Yeah.